Jeremiah 42 and 43. There's an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. We have three more weeks, including this morning, in the book of Jeremiah. So two more Sundays after this morning. In the month of September, we're going to jump to the New Testament, and we're going to talk about Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. So we're going to talk about the book of Colossians. That's going to take us through the rest of this year, but we've got a little bit more work to do in the book of Jeremiah. And like we've done so many times over the last several months, we just want to start by finding our bearings in the book. What's going on in this particular passage? It's not a chronological book. Jeremiah jumps around in the timeline, and so you need to understand where we're at in the story if you want to make sense of this story. So we'll start with this. During the reigns of Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, conquered Judah, and he took many of the Hebrew people into exile. Uh, Judah was functionally conquered during the reign of Jehoiakim, but it was during the reign of Jehoiakim, who you remember only reigned for three months, that Nebuchadnezzar came and he finally conquered Jerusalem, and there was devastation in the city, and he took a group of exiles away to Babylon. Then about 11 years later, he came back when Zedekiah was the king, and he, in cataclysmic fashion, conquered the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and hauled another group of exiles to Babylon. So that's the, the broad setting of our story. Jeremiah, you remember we mentioned this last week, Jeremiah was allowed to stay in Jerusalem, and he was placed under the care of Gedaliah, the appointed governor of Judah. And so when Nebuchadnezzar, this final time, came and conquered the city, destroyed much of Jerusalem, hauled most of the people into exile, just left the poorest of the land. He took Gedaliah and he said, Gedaliah, you work for me. You're the governor of Judah, but you're not the king. You're just here to administrate the things that I want you to do. And if you were to keep reading in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 41, you would read that Gedaliah had a rough go of it as governor. It wasn't long before Nebuchadnezzar left and a man named Ishmael assassinated Gedaliah. And that brings us to something you need to understand. After the assassination of Gedaliah, there was great anxiety about the possibility, or they would have said the probability or the certainty of another wave of exile. So these remaining poor exiles or, or refugees in the land, they looked around and they said, man, we've been thumped twice and then Nebuchadnezzar put Gedaliah on the throne, and Ishmael had to raise up and kill him, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be hot, and he's just going to be done with us, he's frustrated with us, he's put out with us, he's going to come back, and he's going to haul the rest of us into exile. And so collectively, they put their heads together, and they said, we can't stop him if he comes back. We have no ability to fight him off. So our only option is to run away. And collectively, what everyone thought made the most sense was to run away from Judah, to run away from Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, and to run down to Egypt. And they sort of put their collective heads together, and that was the common consensus. We all need to run away to Egypt. And we read what the Lord had to say about that just a moment ago. That brings us to the big idea of this passage. It was a critical moment that these people faced, a critical decision that they faced. The big idea of this passage is that God's people must submit to his word and to his will. 
You've got to submit to the word of God and you have got to submit to the will of God if you are one of God's people. And these folks effectively prove that they care nothing about the Lord and that while they bear the title Israel or Hebrews or the people of God, they are in reality none of these things because they want nothing to do with God's word and nothing to do with his will. Now, today, in the 21st century, I think there's a common misunderstanding amongst church-going people when it comes to the word of God and the will of God. And I think this is the misunderstanding that many people live by, is that you can separate the word of God from the will of God as if those could be two completely different Things. I think many Christians live with this functional understanding. They may not be willing to admit it out loud, but when you talk to them about how they make decisions, they are living with this as their basic operating system. That the word of God may say one thing, and yet God's will for my life may be another thing entirely. They are separating God's word from his will. A very similar mistake, a common misunderstanding that Christians make today is to say, I can discern God's will for my life without consulting his word. All I need to do is just sort of look inside and see how I feel about it, and I'm going to assume that's the Holy Spirit leading me, and I'm going to follow God's, quote, will without even consulting God's word. And all these mistakes, people are separating God's word what he has said from his will, what he wants from his people. And this passage is a reminder that that is a a terrible, terrible mistake. One of my favorite authors is a, a guy named Kevin DeYoung. He wrote a book in 2009 called Just Do Something. And I know you can't read the subtitle on the cover, so I blew it up so you could read the subtitle of the book. How to Make a Decision Without... Dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, etc. Christians ought to read a book like this. Because when it comes to making decisions and saying, what is God's will for my life in this situation? We usually do all the stuff he says we ought not do in the subtitle. Right? We just look for these signs or these confirmations or these things. And all of those may have some place in decision making. But when we rely on only those things, we are separating God's word to his people from his will for his people. These folks in Jeremiah 42 and 43 wanted to know what God's will for their life was. I bet that's a question you've asked in the last six months, year, 18 months. I bet it's a question you've asked at pivotal moments in your life. God, what is your will for me in this situation? And this passage is a helpful passage in thinking through how we approach that question and how we ought to respond when God's word and his will is clear. So let's start by talking about the story. We read it earlier, but we skipped a few parts. So let's just put the big pieces in place. A group of survivors asked Jeremiah to pray that God would tell them what to do. I read this story this week, and I tried to put myself in Jeremiah's shoes, and I found myself thinking, surely when these people... All the exiles have been taken. The survivors are left in the land. When these survivors came to Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, would you please 
pray for us that God would tell us what to do. I imagine Jeremiah's heart grew three sizes. And he said, this is wonderful. I've been preaching to you idiots for some 50 years. And you won't listen to me. You have ignored me. You have mocked me. You have laughed at me. And they finally come. It's like the whole church comes down for the altar call. And Jeremiah says, this is what I've been waiting for all my life. I imagine he was so encouraged. And yet some of you remember when we started this series several months ago, I showed you a painting. Painting is by Michelangelo. It's at the Sistine Chapel. This is Michelangelo's depiction of Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah was called to preach when he was a young man. And no offense to those of you with gray hair and gray beards, but that's not a young man. Michelangelo paints Jeremiah as an old man. And it's such a fascinating picture of Jeremiah. It captures why we call him the weeping prophet. You notice his posture. He's not standing up straight, shoulders back, ready to fire a sermon off. But he's just slumped over as if there's a burden on his back. He's got his hand on his mouth. The man who spent his life saying, thus says the Lord, depicted in a painting with his hand over his mouth. It's as if he has nothing left to say or no one wants to hear what he has to say. And in the painting, his eyes are not up. There's no brightness to them. You can't even see them. He's just sort of staring down blankly at the floor. This is Jeremiah at the end of a life of being mocked, abused, lied about, ridiculed, ignored, arrested. People made attempts on his life. His own family had tried to kill him. He's the weeping prophet. And yet I imagine that as these folks come and they say to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, we have a request. Would you please pray for us? He's an old man and he's been preaching a long time. Would you please pray for us and ask God to tell us what to do. I imagine he was very encouraged. He says in verse 4, I'll do it. I've heard your request. I'll do it. I'll do the thing that you're asking me to do. And the people then respond in verse 5 and verse 6. Did you catch what they said in response? They said, Jeremiah, whatever the Lord tells you, whether we think it's a good thing or a bad thing, we will do it. We want you to pray, ask God to tell us what to do, and whatever God says to do, we will do it. Now look at verse 7. This is in your notes, just word for word. Verse 7, at the end of 10 days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. At the end of 10 days... Why do you think God waited 10 days? The people come. They're eager to hear from God. They're asking to hear from God. Jeremiah is the prophet. God speaks to Jeremiah. Not all of the time, but regularly. It wasn't unusual. And Jeremiah says, I will ask the Lord. He asked the Lord, Lord, what do you want these people to do? And there's no answer. And he wakes up the second day and he asks again and there's no answer. And the third day and the fourth day and the fifth day, a week and a half goes by, 10 days, and God doesn't give an answer. Why did he wait 10 days? Maybe God was trying to decide what to do. 
that sound like a very biblical answer? God just couldn't weigh out the options and he was waiting for writing in the sky or chicken livers or a fleece. of. No, that's not what God was doing. He's not weighing the options. He's not trying to decide. Maybe there's a reminder in here that God speaks when God wants to speak and his people don't tell him when to speak. These people have spent years ignoring the Lord not listening to him. Now they simply maybe presume that they can just walk in and say, okay, now we're ready for you to talk. And God has no obligation to say anything to these people. He has said plenty. So maybe, I don't know, but maybe the Lord is just reminding them, I'll speak to you when I'm ready to speak to you. You don't control me. I'm in control of you. Maybe, I don't know this, this is a bit of conjecture, but maybe there's some sort of test involved here for the people. Because they come to Jeremiah and they're very eager. They're asking all the right questions. They're saying all the right things. God, we want you to pray. Jeremiah, we want you to pray for us to the Lord. Ask him what we ought to do. We'll do whatever he says. But then they wait a day and another day and another and another and a week goes by. Do you know how long 10 days is when you're eager for an answer? Some of you recently have had to wait for some kind of answers from uh, health decisions or legal decisions or uh, contractor decisions, different things. That's an eternity. When you're eager for an answer, they're just waiting and there's waiting and there's waiting. If you keep reading in this passage, it seems that Jeremiah knew that the people had already made up their mind. And so Jeremiah comes back. He tells the survivors what the Lord wanted them to do but he knew that they had already decided to go to Egypt. What he says to the people is, stay in the land, stay in Judah, stay in Jerusalem. Just stay. That's what God wants them to do. Stay right where you're at. You remember, they're scared. They're afraid Babylon's going to come back and haul the rest of them to exile in Babylon. They don't want to go to Babylon. They don't want to be servants in Babylon. They want to stay in the land, but they're afraid that that's not an option. So their plan is, let's go back to Egypt. And God says, just stay. Stay in the land. Look what he says in verse 10. If you stay, I will build you and I will plant you. You won't be torn down anymore and no one will come and pluck you up. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, if you stay, I'm with you. I'll be with you right here. I'm not going to leave you. You won't be alone, but I'll be with you. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, I'll have mercy on you. You've been ignoring me for years, but I'm going to be merciful to you. I'm not going to treat you the way you deserve to be treated. I'll build you up. I'll be with you. I'll have mercy on you if you stay. But through Jeremiah, the Lord says to the people, If you go to Egypt, disaster will overtake you. And when you read 18 to 22, the verses we did not read earlier, it seems clear that as Jeremiah is speaking to the people, he's also reading their faces. And he's looking at the folks in the crowd. And maybe there were folded arms. Maybe there were furrowed brows. Maybe there were heads wagging back and forth. Maybe there were eye rolls. Who knows what was going on, but he's reading the people and he knows they have already made up their mind to go back to Egypt. Pastors have this experience on a regular basis. Parents and grandparents 
have this experience on a regular basis. Those of you with friends who have come to you for counsel or advice have likely had this experience. You can imagine a scenario, maybe recently in your past, where someone has come to you and said, you know, I've got this thing coming up and I just don't know what to do. How do I make sense of this? What should I do? What do you think is God's will in this situation? And you begin to talk to the person about the scriptures, about the things that are true, about how they ought to think about this scenario. But as you begin to talk, you look at their eyes and you realize they're not listening. The church member, the child, the grandchild, the friend, whoever, they're not actually listening. I'm giving the counsel, but they've already decided to go down to Egypt. And you begin to wonder, why, why am I even saying these things? I feel like I'm talking to a wall. That was Jeremiah in this passage. The people politely listened to Jeremiah, and then they very impolitely called Jeremiah a liar and a puppet of Baruch. This is chapter 43, verse 1, 2, and 3. They listen. Jeremiah gives his speech, and then they go right back to their old ways, and they say, Jeremiah, you're a liar. God did not tell you to say that. In fact, we think it was Baruch that told you to say that, your friend, your scribe, Baruch. He put those words in your ear, and you're only saying what he told you to say. Then the story ends with the survivors foolishly going back to Egypt, and it implies that they forced Jeremiah to go back with them. They go back to Egypt, which is a shocking thing in the grand story, not just of Jeremiah, but of the Bible. You'll remember, these are a people. This is a nation that God brought out of Egypt. If you've read the story of God bringing his people out of Egypt, you remember that as soon as they got out from Egypt, as soon as they crossed the Red Sea, they turned around and they wanted to go back. We don't like it out here. We don't like the food. We don't like the sand. We don't like the heat. We don't like the water out of the rock. We don't like any of this stuff. We had it really good as slaves in Egypt, and they just want to go back. All these years later, these men, these survivors, do exactly what their ancestors wanted to do. They reverse the exodus, and they go running, tail between their legs, back to Egypt. Look at verse 7. They came into the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And they arrived at Taphanes. And I imagine in my mind when they got there, Jeremiah sat down and he looked something like that. Been a long journey for Jeremiah. Right here at the end, there was a little glimmer of hope. Jeremiah, will you pray for us? Will you ask the Lord what we're supposed to do in this situation? Yes, I'll pray for you. Jeremiah, we will do whatever the Lord tells you to do. Ten days later, Jeremiah, you're a liar. You're a puppet of Baruch. You're a political hack. And we're going to Egypt, and you're coming with us. And I imagine the weeping prophet sat down, and he looked something like this. It is another, I'm sorry to say, another depressing story in the book of Jeremiah. It's just a sad, sorrowful book, which is why we call him the weeping prophet. Now, what do we do with this story? How do we apply it to our lives? Let me give you a few suggestions, a few thoughts. Number one, we should 
seek God's will for our lives. We should. It is never, 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 never wrong to seek God's will for your life. These people did that for a brief moment. When they came to Jeremiah and they asked him to pray, he said, we want to know what God wants us to do and we'll do whatever he says. It's a good conversation. It's a good impulse. It's a good desire that they have. We should do the same. We should seek God's will for our lives. However, I'm no prophet. I'm not Jeremiah. The word of the Lord does not come directly to me like it came to Jeremiah. We do not have apostles today. That office has died out. So if you're going to seek God's will for your life, the question becomes for people like you and me, how in the world do I do that? I can't go to Jeremiah and ask him for help, so how do I do it? I think this is how you do it. Number one, you pray and ask for wisdom. The book of Proverbs and the book of James promise that God gives wisdom to his people. Wisdom to make decisions in real life. So you pray, trusting that God can give wisdom, and you say, God, I've got this thing, I've got this decision, I'm not exactly sure, I need wisdom. You start with prayer. Second, you close your mouth, and you read the Bible, and you actually listen to what it says. You don't go to the Bible looking for a verse that will allow you to do the thing you want to do. That's using the Bible for your will. But you read the Bible listening to what the Bible actually has to say. Third, you ought to talk to wise, godly friends, people that you trust, people that you look at their life and you say, they're handling their affairs well. Their life doesn't seem to be spinning out of control. They seem to be honoring the Lord in the way that they live their life, in the way that they make decisions. And you go to those people and you say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm facing. This is what I'm leaning towards. What do you think about this? How do you feel about it? And when you've done all those things, you don't look for the chicken shivers. You don't look for the writing in the sky. You don't lay out fleeces. You just do something. You make a decision. Whatever you do, you don't disobey the Lord and his voice. You don't ignore his clearly revealed will for you in your life. But at some point, you just have to do something. You just have to make a decision. In all of that process, you are seeking God's will for your life. That's a good thing to do. However, most of us get this a little bit backwards. This is how Phil Riken talks about this story. He says, asking, for, uh, asking God for directions is always the right thing to do. The trouble is, too many people do not start asking those questions until they're halfway down to Egypt. They only pretend to want to know God's will for their lives. What they really want is for God to put his rubber stamp on the plans that they have already made. That's what these people are doing. That's what you and I do many times. We come to God in prayer, plans in our hand, and we simply say, God, I want you to bless this plan. This is what I'm doing, and I'm asking you to bless it. Well, that's not seeking his will at all. Just asking God to do what you want him to do. We come to God in prayer. Sounds right, looks right, but we have our plans already in our hand and what we really want is to come to God to shake him up like a magic eight ball and then to see the yes. Go for it. And if we don't get it, we shake harder and we look again. And if you don't get it again, you shake harder and you do it again. We come to God in prayer and we say, God, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I think you're leading me to do. 
And just like these people, many times we have absolutely no intention of changing our plans or our decisions if we were to discover or learn that God's clearly spoken word, his clearly revealed will is contrary to what we were planning. So Derek Kidner, another Bible commentator, says it like this. All along, they regarded God as a power to enlist, not a Lord to obey. And they still cannot believe, they cannot believe that his will can be radically different from their own. So listen, it's a good thing to seek God's will in your life. But as you seek it, praying for wisdom, reading his word, getting godly counsel, making a decision. As you go through that process, you just keep in the back of your mind, God may redirect me 180 degrees at any point. And he has the right to do that. So number one, we should seek God's will for our lives. Number two, we should remember that God's will is never determined by popular vote. Not in ancient Israel. Not when Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees. Not during the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. Not in 2021. The will of God is not ever determined by popular vote. I want you to think about this scenario. This is a ragtag bunch of exiles in Jerusalem. And they're talking about what to do. And there's two options. We stay here or we go to Egypt. Option one or two. Stay, go to Egypt. So imagine it's a Baptist business meeting. They call for a vote. All those who want to stay, please show by sign of raising your hand. One hand goes up, at least that we know of. Let's assume Baruch also raises his hand. He gets thrown under the bus here. And let's be generous and let's assume that Jeremiah's friend we met last week, Ebed-Melech, the guy who saved him from the well. Let's assume he's loyal still, he's still courageous. So maybe you've got three men raising their hands saying, we vote to stay. The implication of the text is that all of the other hands that go up are in favor of going to Egypt. What was the right thing to do? Is what the majority wanted? No. It was the minority who was right, and it was the majority who was wrong. Popular vote does not determine God's will. This has been true throughout church history. Let me just give you a quick walk through church history. In the earliest days of the early church, the biggest, hottest burning doctrinal controversies were about the person of Christ and about all of these Christological heresies. Who is Jesus and what did he accomplish? There were crazy ideas floating around and there were crazy ideas that were really popular. And it took a while for the ecumenical councils to settle that doctrinal controversy and to decide, no, this is the truth about Jesus. But there were times in the early church where the heretics were the majority. Then you get to the medieval period and there is some crazy stuff being taught about salvation, the doctrine of soteriology. How does a person go to heaven when they die? How are they made right with God? The Roman Catholic Church added some crazy stuff to the mix, some very unbiblical stuff to the mix. And it was the Protestant Reformation that came along after many, many years of false teaching, many, many years of the majority being wrong. And the reformer said, no, 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 salvation. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, for the glory of God alone. 
That's the truth. And they were the minority. You and I live in the 21st century. I think some of the commentators are right when they say we live in the age of anthropological heresy. We live in the age when people have no idea what a human being is. People are completely confused and it has disastrous consequences. And do you know what? I don't know if you've been paying attention, but you and I are now in the minority. We are the minority. It's not easy to be in the minority. It's not easy to raise your hand and say, I think we ought to stay in Jerusalem when every, every other hand says, I think we ought to go to Egypt. It's not easy to do that. And it's not easy to stand up when you're being bombarded every single day with lies, false teaching about what is a human being, what is gender, what is sex, what is marriage, what are the roles of men and women in homes and in churches, what is the value of human life in the womb, what is the dignity of a human life if their passport has a different color than your passport. People are confused about all of that stuff in all different branches of life today. Listen, the majority does not determine the truth on any of those issues. God's word determines the truth on those issues, and it is not going to be easy to stand in the minority. You'd better resolve that in your heart today. God's will is never determined by popular vote not in the grand scheme of humanity, and not in your life individually. You don't need to get on a Reddit forum. You don't need to listen to a bunch of YouTubers tell you how you ought to live your life or make a decision. You don't need social media influencers to lean you one way or the other. You don't need opinion polls about what's popular or what's acceptable today or what's politically correct today. When it comes to your life, you just stop and you say, God, I need wisdom. And I'm going to read and listen to your word and I'm going to find godly, wise people and I'm going to get their advice and I'm going to make a decision that would honor you. God's will is never determined by popular vote. Thirdly, we should trust God rather than fear man. These people were afraid. They were terrified. Their family and friends had been hauled off into exile. Their city had been charred and destroyed and plundered. Their governor, highest political leader in their area, had been assassinated. And they were convinced that Nebuchadnezzar was going to march back and haul them into exile. They were terrified. Look at chapter 42, verse 11. They felt the emotion of fear. 42:11. Do not fear the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid, do not fear him. It's interesting. Our society says that if you feel an emotion, you should just follow it. Emotions are like some unstoppable, inviolable force that just control us. And these people are being controlled by their fear. But God speaks into their lives and he says, stop it. Don't feel that way. You understand that God can tell you how to feel? Not just what to say and what to do, where to go. He can tell you this is how you ought to feel about something. About the king of Babylon, you should not be afraid, he tells these people. 
Do you think it's possible that God may tell you to do something that you might find scary? It's scary for a young man to hear that God says you should forsake living for yourself. You should take a wife. You should sacrifice for her. You should raise your children making sacrifices for them. That's not what the world tells young men to do. That's a scary thing for a lot of people. It's a scary thing when the Bible says to people like you and me, you need to give of your finances generously and sacrificially. That terrifies people. Because we're told every day in our society that money is the thing that makes us secure and safe. And so when we hear that that word from the Lord that we're to give generously and sacrificially, we say, well, that scares the living daylights out of me. You want me to give away my security, my money? That's scary. When God calls a person to go on a mission trip and share the gospel with people that maybe don't even speak their own language, or even worse, when God tells you to go to work or school and share the gospel with people who do speak your language, that's terrifying. Our world says you shouldn't tell anybody what they ought to believe. That's none of your business. You should just affirm whatever it is they already believe. God says you should go tell them the truth, tell them the good news. That's a scary thing. What do you do in those situations when God tells you to do something that's scary? You come back to a story like this and you say, I've got to trust God rather than fear man. Last, we should pray that God would write his words on our hearts. I don't think this is directly from this passage, but I think it's directly from the book of Jeremiah. We talked about Jeremiah 31 a few weeks ago. Jeremiah 31 is a promise of the new covenant when God will do a work on the inside of the hearts of his people. He'll write his words on their hearts. I look at these people and I say it hasn't happened yet. These people remind me not so much of Jeremiah 31, but of a verse in the book of Proverbs that says this, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. These people were suffering. Why? They didn't trust the Lord and they refused to follow his will for their lives. It's pretty simple. They didn't trust God and they refused to listen to his word. They refused to submit to his will and they're suffering for it. So what do they do in this passage? They double down like a dog going back to its vomit and they say, we will not listen to the word that the Lord has spoken and we will not do what he wants us to do. Like a dog going back to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Listen, what you and I need is more, we need more than God yelling a little bit louder at us like an American tourist overseas who doesn't speak the language and they think that if they just speak English louder that someone will understand them, right? It doesn't work. We don't need God to just yell louder at us from the outside. We need God to change us from the inside out. That's the hope of the book of Jeremiah. In many ways, it's a hopeless, sad, sorrowful, depressing book. But right in the middle of it, the heart of the book, Jeremiah 31 is a promise of a new covenant. Jesus himself said that the new covenant was inaugurated in his death on the cross dying for our sins and purchasing us us with his blood. 
And this promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, is that God will do something on the inside of us that will change us from the inside out. He will write his word on our hearts. Listen, if you and I are ever going to listen to the word of God and submit to the will of God, we need more than a preacher or a Jeremiah or a prophet or an apostle just banging you over the head with the Bible. You need almighty God to do a work in your life. I can't do it. I am absolutely powerless to do it. But God can do it. And he promised hundreds of years ago that he would do this in the lives of his people. He would write his word on our hearts. We pray for that this morning. Let's pray.